Hi, I'm Tage Singh, and welcome to Office Hours with Dorm Room Fund, where we interview some of the most successful people in startups, technology, and corporate America. Dorm Room Fund is a student-run venture capital firm backed by First Run Capital. We write seed checks of $20,000 into startups founded by fellow students. Since our founding in 2014, we've funded over 275 startups, which are now collectively worth over a billion dollars and have gone on to raise over $500 million in follow-on funding from Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, Excel, and others. To pitch us, go to dormroomfund.com. Enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Tate Singh, and I'm joined by Adele Lee, and today we're interviewing Sarah Thompson, the CEO of Droga5. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us here today. Yeah, thanks for coming in. So tell us about your early years. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Western Maine, which is Stephen King country. If you can imagine Stephen King uh, movies, books, that's exactly where I'm from, a tiny town called New Sharon. And that was the end of the logging trail. There's about 800 people. So very rural America. Do you have any memories growing up? What was your earliest memory? My earliest memory? Gosh, we had lots of animals. So I can remember, you know, helping my older sisters take care of horses, lots of snow. You know, there was time that there was so much snow on our roof that we all had to go out and uh, shovel it off, which is kind of a crazy concept. You didn't have flat roofs? Or you had, you had, you had flat or you had it, it, slanted? Both, I think. Yeah. In one of those kind of cobbled together houses, yeah. What did your parents do? My mother was a kindergarten teacher, still is a kindergarten teacher, and my father was an executive at one of the wood mills, which are basically non-existent anymore because they all went overseas to Asia, but that's what he did. What were you like as a child? Were you mischievous academic? Oh, gosh. I, as a child, I think I was shy. You know, I was quite academic. I worked very hard, you know. I think um, I was a shyer kid. I had older sisters who I kind of followed around. I came into my own as I got older. <laughs> did you get good grades? Did your parents emphasize that you, know, you had to get above a certain? Yeah, there's a lot of people we've, the surprising thing is after interviewing so many people, yeah. you realize that you know, the biggest CEOs, they, they kind of, they did, they did well to subjects they cared about, ignored the <laughs> ones they didn't, and somehow life all yes. know, turns out well in the end. <laughs> that could not be more true. And I'm trying to put more pressure on my own kids because it's so not natural to me to put academic pressure on them. Exactly what you said. I don't think I was a amazing student. I loved the classes that I loved, more sort of liberal arts type of classes. As I got into college and school, I loved English and writing and things like mythology. I was terrible at math, which is slightly concerning that I'm in charge of our p Well, that's but what a CFO is <laughs> Exactly. I was not good in math. There was no pressure. I remember, you know, when I got a C or something, another thing I probably shouldn't admit, my father telling me like, it's fine. I don't know why you care so much. You work hard. You, you know, try try at the next thing. So there was not, there was a lot of pressure to work hard. And I think be a good person and have a responsibility to other people from my parents. How you interact in the world, but an actual grade was, you know, barely looked at my report card. <laughs> what did you think your life would be like when you grew up as a child? 
I think because I was such a, I was very curious about the world and ideas. When I was 17, I did an exchange in France after, I think, never leaving the state of Maine. That was the first time I was out of Maine. And it just opened my eyes to history, to ideas, to different cultures. And I think at that point, I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I wasn't a very good writer, though, so that was a minor problem. But I thought I wanted to just, you know, see the world, experience the world. And I knew I wanted to be an in an ideas-based creative field. Did you have a nickname? Um, In college, I had a nickname. It was Skit because one of my friends, after probably too many drinks, called me Skitter Girl because that's what I talked about the boys in Maine. We used to call them Skitter Boys, the ones who worked in the woods. (laughs) Who were your best friends in high school and college? What were they like? Um, I was very close to other girls, you know, very, very strong women friends. They were all very independent, you know, wanted to do their own thing, kind of have a purpose in the world. And I'm still really close to them all. I'm going away with my, you know, college roommates in a month. What did you decide to study in college and how did you get there? So I ended up going to Stonehill College, which was a liberal arts college outside of Boston. And I didn't know really what I wanted to do when I went there. I thought it was something You know, I I focused on English, but I knew it was something around like philosophy. I don't know what you do with that kind of degree, but it didn't really matter. It still doesn't matter. And I would tell any college student that everything I did was and I loved was, you know, ethics classes, philosophy, English, history, that type of thing. Can you talk about the work ethic you that was instilled in your life growing up? So, for example, I think you had horses. You had to wake mm. up at 5 a.m. to take care yeah. of them. Tell us a yeah. little bit about that, what yeah. it was like living in a town of 800 people, your yeah. parents being from San Francisco and former hippies. Yeah. Give us a sense of the, that, <laughs> you know, that culture. A lot. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, that was one. Again, it was they were never about, like, you know, take this extracurricular, get an internship. By the way, I never had an internship. I didn't have any sort of connections. It was very much about, you know, it's your life. It's up to you how you want to live it, how you want to engage. And hard work was just really was part of it. Yeah. You know, nothing was given to you. You had to really, it was kind of up to you. You had to deliver whether I played field hockey. If I wanted to start, it was you know, it was it was up to me whether I did or didn't, you know, fail or succeed. It was kind of on me. You know, I never expected anyone to kind of give me anything. I think that was part of it. I think my parents, you know, being kind of ex-hippies, my father was a musician. They moved up to Maine to be closer to the land. I think what they just instilled is, you know, do whatever you want, see the world, go wherever you can. But you know, the, my mom used to say you could be herd sheep in Peru or, you know, be a doctor. Not that I would have been a good doctor, not being very good at science, but whatever it is, like as long as you work hard, you know, that's kind of all that matters. When you were young, what did you think about creative industries? Mm-hmm. As if it was a very different world back then with limited internet and technology, and now yeah. it's a very different world. Yeah, that's true. That's totally true. And even females were less kind of involved, like Peggy Olson, right? From yeah. Edmund. Yeah, totally. I would say I don't. When I was high school age, I wouldn't have really known what a creative industry was. Only that I liked ideas, and you know, I loved reading books, and you know, that type of thing. So that's where I thought I wanted to be a journalist. But once I started really thinking about advertising, I wanted to. I acknowledged and saw like what I thought was amazing advertising from a pretty early age, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And it took me a, quite a while to break into it, but you know, I just saw the end product. 
and knew that I wanted to be a part of it. One of my first jobs in a legitimate ad agency was at Goodby Silverstein and Partners in San Francisco. Still we interviewed uh, Rich. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it was a great agency. It's still a great agency. And, you know, that like really instilled in me kind of a sense of what goes into creating great ideas and being a part of it. But there was a Norwegian Cruise Line campaign from many, many years ago, way before both of you. And it was um, called It's Different Out Here. And it just took the cruise experience and, you know, brought that to life in a way that, you know, was incredibly inspiring. And I remember seeing those ads and thinking, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to be a part of that world. So I think I fell in love with it in a pretty early age, but I wouldn't have known all the different components of it. So what I find fascinating is, despite not having that parental pressure to kind of work mm. hard, you were extremely hard workers. So for example, you know, working at that Bieber company as a sales assistant, you, know, you said mm-hmm. you took the job very seriously. Or even at yeah. PG&E, you, I think your job was to clean the, can you talk about cleaning the floors and how you, <laughs> and like. My sister still makes fun of me for that. I spot checked the rugs. I worked in, I moved out to San Francisco you know, I'd been in Boston for a long time. My sister was out there. I was trying to get a job in advertising, getting like deeply rejected, but I think mainly because I couldn't type fast enough. That's what I usually heard. But I was trying to get an entry level job and to make ends meet. I worked at a yogurt shop. I worked as a waitress in basically a Howard Johnson's wash dishes. I wasn't even a full time waitress. And I worked in the maintenance department of yeah, Pacific Gas and Electric. So I was on the bottom floor. I'd get my little, you know, sort of suit on every day because I took that very seriously. And if someone had like the sink is broken, they'd have to fill out a form on floor forty four and send it down to us. But one of my jobs was to spot check the rugs. So I'm pretty young, you know, right out of college and I would have to go up and down this huge building and look at the floor and say, Okay, here's the spots on the rug. I document them all, they get clean and I'd have to go back up and document if the spots had been removed. So I have to say it was a rather humiliating experience to have to walk into cubes and be like, can you lift up your feet, please? I need to check the rugs. So yes. Did people back then, you know, not believe in you that you'd one day kind of become the CEO of not only, you know, a typical ad agency, but now Droga 5, which is one of the the leading in the world? I, I think that's a really good question and advice that I would give because I would say in my early years, I was definitely a quieter person. You know, I always cared and brought together groups of people, but it took me a long time to sort of believe in myself. And I think if people who knew me in my early years would not have thought that I would go on to be a CEO, it would, you know, be more, you know, people really like you, you know, you have kind of the softer skills, that type of thing. So yeah, I would say I was kind of underestimated. It's interesting to me how you were so focused on getting into this industry Mm -hmm. and exceeding in it at such a young age. Can you tell us a story about the, maybe the first time you entered this industry? Did you have an experience that maybe shocked you about what actually it took to succeed and the intricacies of the work? Well, gosh, I'm going to date myself here. So when I first really got into the industry, it was gig at an amazing place. Was it could be? And I must have been in my early, mid-20s. And I think I was pretty shocked by the pace and the commitment and the combining of personal and professional. You know, even back then and in this industry, everything was combined. Your social life, there weren't nearly the boundaries that there, you know, are on the business world today, probably for the right reasons. So, 
you know, social happened in a professional space. People worked into, you know, into the wee hours of the night. I think I was probably, I don't know if I was shocked. I instantly loved it. And I was always focused on getting to the next level because I saw what the person above me was doing and I really wanted to be a part of that. So tell us how you ended up at Drogo. So I um, was working at Bartle Bogle Hagerty, which is an ad agency here. It's based in London, but they had an office in New York for a really long time. I was incredibly established. I was pregnant with my second child, and a friend of mine had come to Droga, who at the time was a really small agency. I think it was about maybe 15 people, maybe a bit more. And my friend is our is currently has always been our chief strategy officer, Johnny Bauer. So we worked together at BBH. And he called me up and said, you know what, you have to come here. I think they really need like a leader, a business head. And I think you do really well here. We're doing like amazing work. And my response was, I was, how old would I have been? I think I was 30, I must have been 39. So at that point, I was like, I don't think I would ever go to Droga 5. It's kind of a hipster agency. I'm so established here. And he said, just come in. So I came in, I met with Johnny and David and a couple of the other leaders here, and I just had a moment, could not have been a worse time to leave my job because I was you know, four months pregnant, which they didn't realize at the time. And I was like, you know what? I think I might do this. So then I felt the need to tell David Droga that I was pregnant before he gave me official offer. And you know, his response was like, that's okay, we want, we want the right people. This is about long-term. And one thing he said to me is like, look, we, our DNA isn't going to change. We're always going to strive to do great things. But if something's not working, we can take it down and build it up again. And that meant a ton to me. And I, I had like great anxiety. I'm leaving a great job, an established place. I was quite senior at that time about taking the job. But the reason I ended up taking it was even though there was a lot of risk involved, we weren't even making any real money at that point as a company was I never want to not do something because I'm afraid that I'll fail. That seems like a terrible reason not to do something that might be interesting. And I said, let's give it a whirl. And here I am, 12 years later. <laughs> what did you do back then? Were you? I uh, came in as a managing director. So they called me and said, I think we need some business leadership. Things are a bit chaotic. And it definitely was. And you know, the rest was history. I would say I was given, I, other places I've worked or so, have been so, before Droga 5 were so established that um, I had so many checks and balances to make any decision that I almost couldn't fail. And what I found out, like, within the first year of Droga 5, I'm like, wow, there's, like, a lot of rope for me to hang myself. And it made me more accountable. You know, one thing I did, which is funny, I didn't have, like, all the financial support that I've had at these big companies where there's multiple CFOs. We didn't have any of that. So I got one of those yellow books, you know, something for dummies. I got cash flow for dummies. I got all kinds of different things. I had to educate myself and really own my decisions. And I think that was like everything from a leadership perspective. It seems like you jumped from a bigger, more traditional and established firm to mm -hmm. basically a startup. Yeah. What was that experience like for you to not have maybe some of the processes that you expected in place? Yeah. I mean, it was it was hard, you know, even figuring out the different dynamics, building the processes that you need while maintaining like the free culture that was Droga 5 and is still Droga 5. But it was a step-by-step. Step. You know, it was, this is what we're trying to do. How do we get there? It was a lot of failure. 
You know, there was lots of things that I tried and put in place and, you know, people like we what? hired. Oh, you know, we joke that we ha- we at one point were on social 4.0, you know, because we had different times of trying to figure out how do we really deliver social plans for our clients? What does that look like? How do we be always on? What department should it sit in? That type of thing that sometimes we just didn't have the right structure to be able to move as quick as we needed to for to have people feel empowered, you know, to work around like different legalities and production issues that came up. So sometimes you have to be like, okay, that didn't work. Got to pivot and try something else. Talk about some of the eccentric things you do here that makes the culture so incredible. So for example, mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but isn't there a bell that rings for pizza at 6 p.m. or, or <laughs> yes, food? Yes, we right? always serve dinner. We've been serving dinner since I showed up 12 years ago, so I don't think we can ever not serve dinner. And, you know, we've evolved it over the years where we have, like, a lot of female and diverse caterers and that type of thing to, you know, really embrace where we want to go as a culture. There's things like that. People always have their dogs. You know, there's always a little cute dog sitting on someone's desk. I don't know if it's allowed or not in the building, but they they seem to get in. We do Thanksgiving, a Thanksgiving potluck every year that, you know, there's different different points where it's so big you can barely see the end of the room. And, you know, originally people were saying what they were thankful for, writing it down, lots of toast and alcohol and fun. So that has, that's kind of always mattered. I think as a culture, you know, two of the most important, the first thing is the work we put into the world, like always striving to do great things and be a part of it. The other thing I would say is, you know, we can be serious and have very high standards, but we also like always have a good laugh. I mean, no matter who you are, or what level, there's plenty of days where you just think, oh my God, there's just not one more thing that can go wrong and not taking ourselves too seriously and, you know, having a comfort level of making mistakes and kind of regrouping about the meeting and saying like, well, that part was hilarious or awful. I don't know. And and friends, you know, I feel like I'm sitting around a table with friends, you know, and I I, I think people feel that all the way. What was the first huge client that you landed after joining? I think the biggest, we had some Activision. Puma was here when I started. I think there was two around the same time. There was Prudential which, you know, at the time, everyone was like, oh, my God, you got Prudential? That's going to change That's the whole agency. agency. Yes. So that was a big one. And we we didn't care what the category was. We could, like, feel their ambition. And, you know, we're a smart agency. They're a smart company. And we, we did great things together. The other was Craft, um, which was another one that, you know, at first everyone's like, oh, my God, packaged goods. We're selling it's, like, so slow. It's going to be so traditional. But we worked with a great client um, who was looking for some smaller creative agencies. And we were doing, we did the work for Honeymade, Graham Crackers. This is Wholesome. It was a long time ago, but it kind of really, it we redefined what family is. And it was quite cutting edge at the time, and they could not have been more proud of it. And that same client who we worked with, she's now the CMO at Hershey, and we're working with her. So, you know, that seemed like very traditional, but we've done, you know, amazing work. And proving that we can do amazing things on any category was really pivotal. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Mm. You said that the work that you did for these brands really defined what a family was. Like, can you talk about yeah. how... Well, that was one account, that was one campaign. So it was Honey Made Graham Crackers. Mm-hmm. And in the 
world of crackers, a graham cracker is actually quite wholesome. So that's sort of the product truth. We did a campaign um, quite, I want to say many years ago, but quite a few years ago, which again, could have been very boring, could have been like traditional mom giving her kids a snack type of thing. But what we did is, you know, define that wholesome is about family, whatever your family looks like. So it might be a diverse couple, it may be a same-sex couple, you know, whatever it is. The notion was like, this is actually wholesome. And we had to like really plan at the time because it was quite some time ago, you know, for negative reaction. So we worked with them to have a reaction if to have a plan if there was something negative out there. So we took all the sort of hater tweets. I don't even know if it was tweeting back then, but anything social media that was hate and made it into like a big love collage and made it into a video that we sent around and, and it got so much PR and got so much play. And, you know, the company was so proud of it. You know, it's like the first type of thing where they took a stand and they were really proud of it. What about the, the the agency enabled you you to win against other typical Madison Avenue agencies? Because mm. given it's a services business and the same people rotate from one firm to the other, yeah. how are you able to you know start off as a fifteen person agency to now yeah. and eventually being the behemoth you are now? Yeah, I think it was always about the type of work we did. So we've always we've never just been like okay, cool, creative ideas. We've always gone really deep from a strategic and business perspective. So we get to like the very innovative breakthrough creative ideas, but with a strategic foundation. This is where your consumer is. This is where the brand is. How are we going to cut through? But it really, I know it sounds very simple, but it comes down to the work you do. So, you know, I always say if the work is average and looks like everything else and doesn't cut through, no client ever remembers why. They just know that it isn't good enough, even if they were part of it. The reason why it's not as good as it could be. So just, I think, our people and the push to do great things. Like that, that's what it is. A lot of the work that you do capitalizes on current trends in society mm-hmm. and media today. How do you instill in your colleagues and your coworkers the need to kind of stay fresh and active on the kind of feelings and emotions that we all embody? Yeah, well, I think that comes down to you have to kind of be wired that way to be here. You know, I think people who are here and part of their job and what they're creating are really curious people. And everyone's not going to know everything. But, you know, I will say, like, even today, I'm constantly being sent, like, this is this is a really interesting phenomenon. Here is, like, an interesting idea. We've seen what this, what's happening here and what's going on. So I think, you know, it's part of people's remit and job, but it's also part of who they are. You know, kind of just... I would say what makes up our our strongest members of our workforce and our workforce in general is curiosity. You know, I think it's a little bit of a like a relentlessness to keep pushing and figure out what is right and stamina, you know, because things can be it is a service business. It can be hard. It can be round after round. But how do you kind of like regroup and focus and say, okay, what's next? You quickly rose up in the ranks of Droga. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of the colleagues that you once worked with, now you were the boss. Mm-hmm. What is it that others you think others saw in you that made you such a successful leader, especially in the competitive world that is, you know, ad agencies? 
That is such a good question. Well, I think, you know, the one thing about Droga is I would say about 99% of our management team has rose up through the ranks. You know, and I think that says a lot about the agency. We always, we tend to promote from within when whenever we can. I think for me personally, I don't think I've ever asked to be promoted. I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> Might be a generational thing, but I don't think I ever have. I think, you know, I've always been someone who brings people together. And, you know, to me, leadership is about being quite objective and seeing the strengths in everyone, because we're only we're only as good. We're never going to be good in parts. We're only going to be strong as a whole. So, you know, I'm not always the smartest person in the room, but I know that, you know, what I can do is bring out the best in other people and, you know, kind of help people rise up and be better so we're stronger as a whole. Have you watched Mad Men? I have watched parts of Mad Men. What are some <laughs> of your favorite shows? My favorite shows, Mad Men, was indeed pretty good. Let's see. What have I most recently watched? Well, I did just watch Parasite, which, of course, won all the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. That's not a show, which I thought was phenomenal. Yeah. haven't seen anything like it, you know, in so long. Let's see. I watched Peaky Blinders. I have a pretty big span of different things. Oh, I watched Succession. Oh, I love yeah. Succession. <laughs> so good. Billions, have you watched? I watched Billions. I have a friend who consults on that show who's a... A financial lawyer, so he got me onto it. I liked Billions quite a bit first season, but Succession second season was great. All the HBO stuff, so, Sharper Objects, everything, so good. So Suits is not HBO, but have you watched that? I have not watched Suits, but maybe I should. Or Scandal, anything by... I um, haven't done who, who made Scandal? scandal? Uh, Shonda Rhimes. Shonda Rhimes. Oh, yeah. What's the one with Kerry Washington? I've seen. How to Get Away, How to get away with Murder. Not that one. What's is Scandal, Scandal the one where she, yeah. yes. yeah, I watched a lot of that. Yeah. There's only so long I can stay awake. I, I just started <laughs> watching the show Twenty Four. Have you No, but that's like an old one, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah that would be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I remember of a break. It was so addicting. It's the only sh- so that and Scandal are the two addicting shows I've watched. Oh, yeah, yeah. For twenty four I watched the entire season in one day continuously. Oh, so it was like gosh. eighteen hours of television. I would it's do that. Well I caught up I was like five seasons behind mm-hmm. on Game of Thrones. My husband told me originally, You're never gonna like this, it's too gory mm-hmm. and I was like walking around watching it. I mean Game of Thrones. That's Pretty one of awesome. your your big wins at Droga is yes. doing that campaign. We did the Super Bowl yeah. where he killed the Bud Light Night. Yes. <laughs> what have been some other Super Bowl campaigns that you've done over the years? Um, so, I mean, one thing I love about what we've done on Super Bowls, we've kind of redefined Super Bowl. So I personally, somebody asked me what my key moment at Droga 5 was. And one for me was we did if a campaign called If We Made It for Heineken for Newcastle. Brown Ale. You have to watch it as one of our case studies. But basically, they could never afford to be on the Super Bowl. So it was with Anna Kendrick before she was huge. And it was a whole campaign with all kinds of content and social that was talking about like Newcastle Brown Ale couldn't afford. You couldn't even say Super Bowl. So it's just like crazy, funny, different scenarios about that. So yeah, that was a great one. Our Australia tourism work where we faked that we were bringing back Crocodile Dundee. That was two years ago. And then announced on the Super Bowl, we did all these trailers. We got all these famous Australians to pretend they were acting in it. And then we released on Super Bowl that it was just a tourism ad. That was excellent. And then the Game of Thrones and Bud Light. 
So I'm sure part of your job is, uh, I don't know what to call it, pitching business or uh, trying to get new clients. Mm -hmm. Is there one that you remember was a huge client that was, that's been a milestone one over the years that you were so nervous um, or anxious about, you know, the... the, the yeah, oh, I think Chase. Made, because the size, not only the size, but because it kind of shaped the, the way monumental. Droga would uh, kind of, you know... Yeah, I think, I think Chase was a big one. And I think that was four years ago where we got the first piece of Chase and... They were incredibly smart, a very impressive group, a lot of female leaders. And, you know, we had to be, you know, pretty buttoned up, but also like inspiring, creative. And it was a long pitch. So we got the first piece of that. And it was one of those where the sometimes during the actual pitch meeting, you have all these meetings leading up to it. It's like you can't really get a reaction because clients tend to be a little bit like – you know, stone face during the final pitch. So it was really hard to tell. And then I I took the subway home. By the time I got to Brooklyn, they were texting me being like, you won. So that was a very oh. big moment. And we continued to grow it. And they're a great partner. Was yeah. there any, you know, second order effects that surprised you of one of the ads that maybe you put out there into the world? You know, this wasn't a surprise, but I was incredibly thrilled by it was many years ago the Misty Copeland ad for Under Armour I will what I want I don't know if you remember that one but you know they didn't have much media money having Misty as an athlete was like a huge move for them and I just did not I thought it was great you know I thought it was like absolutely the right ad for Under Armour to launch their women's business but I had I underestimated the response that would have. You know, we got an email from Gloria Steinman, which was pretty awesome, you know, talking about it. Sheryl Sandberg, you know, this really represents, you know, point of view. At the time, I, yeah, I, I was surprised, <laughs> you know, how, how strong the reaction was. Maybe I shouldn't have been. Maybe I was underestimating us. <laughs> Let's move on to some rapid fire questions. Okay. Go for it. Okay, good. I'm probably terrible at these, but I will try. If you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would it be? Uh, Paris. If you could star in any, any sitcom, which would it be? A sitcom. How about Succession? Is that a sitcom That's, or yeah. a drama? Would you want to be one of the kids or the adults? <laughs> I want to be one of those like mean, nasty kids. Yeah. yeah. Which which one? Uh, which character do you like the best? So I forget the name. There's the uh, Kendall, right? Which is the, the I like Kendall because he brought it home at the mm -hmm. end of season two. <laughs> Have you watched Homeland? No, okay. I haven't. The yeah. season came out yesterday. I need I'm to do that too. <laughs> If you could um, have your own talk show, who would your first three guests be? Ooh, I think I'd go Michelle Obama. Maybe I'd bring Barack in just for fun. Or you, oh, also, by the way, it could be dead or alive, so you could people choose people from history as well. Oh, gosh, people from history. Michelle Obama, Barack Obama. I don't know. Maybe i do... I don't know. I told you I'm not good at this rapid fire. Who do, so do, are you like a history buff? Are there certain events that if you could go back in history, you would love to witness them firsthand? You know, I think I probably couldn't handle any of the really depressing because history can be rather depressing. But I think like both the 20s and the 60s, you know, they were just a key moment where there was like a lot of hope. I don't know if it all came through for certain generations, but, you know, to be a part of that and really feel like something was changing, it's not something you know, being born in 69 and growing up in the 80s, you necessarily experienced. Speaking of the 20s, have you watched The Great Gatsby? 
Yes. What did you think of that? The book, the which movie? There's, I think there's two, right? Um, I saw the. Well, I definitely read the book. I saw the newest movie, the DiCaprio, and I definitely saw the old one with like Robert Redford. Listen, the the second one was like a beautiful show, like the <laughs> outfits, everything. Yes. It was pretty amazing, and you can't really go wrong with DiCaprio. <laughs> what childish things do you still do as an adult? What childish thing do I do? Oh, I still bike with my kids, like on a, you know, how old are <laughs> a they? A kid like bike, I, uh, fourteen and eleven. So still play with the cat, all kinds of things like that. Do they know? Well, I guess the fourteen-year-old probably knows what you know advertising is and the kind of what drug is, kind of like a big thing, right? <laughs> yes, but they've always grown up. He's a big hockey player, very pragmatic. He finds my job very boring. <laughs> and once I was, you know, years ago when I was written up in the New York Times article, it was over summer. It came out, and I was so proud to be in the corner office. And I was with him at a hockey camp, and he's like, "That's great, mom, but I'm not going to read this because you know it's summer." <laughs> <laughs> I want to read in the summer. I was like, okay. Yeah, my but my daughter is very, when she was little, she used to tell people that I was um, the CIA. She used mm. to get it confused with CEO. So she used <laughs> to tell everyone, well, my mom's the CIA, so she can't pick me up. I'm like, let's just go with that. Sounds Hello. cool. Do they ever comment on ads from clients? Uh, yes, I show them everything and the case studies. And, you know, it's funny what they like the most or you know we had a super bowl spot we had the alexa spot for oh, amazon you, you you made that yeah our london oh office God. and so they oh. were super you know they gave it a rating and now my daughter's <laughs> like old enough like she's like your alexa spots following me around everywhere on the internet <laughs> yeah. With ellen Yes. That was the most incredible thing. Oh, like, good. so you, you, how'd you, yeah, that must have been expensive going back through time. It was very and... expensive. It was beautifully crafted. Craft Matters. Mm. Our creative director in London is an amazing craftsman. But yeah, it was, it, it was pretty expensive. Have you met with Bezos? <laughs> I have not, no. But I know he approves everything. He approves the Especially when 100 final million people spot. are seeing yeah. it. <laughs> you guys yeah. do a good job of making me want to buy a ton of stuff. I know, see? It's good. <laughs> Would you rather have a rewind button or a pause button on life? Pause. Yeah, I don't need rewind. What's there to rewind for? Pause. What's something you've done that no one expected? Oh, gosh, I guess being a CEO. I don't think anyone would have expected that. What's the best gift anyone's ever given you? My husband gave me a bike because we just moved to the suburbs, and I had lived in the city for 25 years, and I had not ridden a bike since I was in Maine. What failure have you learned from the most? Failure. I think at one point we were probably growing work-wise, probably growing too fast at Droga. You know, we've had like record year-on-year growth and we probably should have slowed it down a little bit. Why? Now I would slow Culture it down. Di- di- yeah, I think it's hard to, when you're just keeping up with growth and you're constantly hiring, like you might end up, you know, not paying enough attention to a difficult account or making sure that people have the right support and they're getting burnt out. You know, burnout's a, a huge factor. So not being able to really keep an eye on culture and people when you're just trying to keep up can be a little bit difficult. And you can slow down. You can speed up and slow down growth all the time. <laughs> so now let's wrap up with some lighthearted questions. Okay. What's the silliest memory with your best friend? Uh, sleeping outside in Maine 
Under the Stars, I think. I don't know if that's silly, yeah. but. I watched Bert B's How I Built This episode. Oh, yeah. With, uh, I, didn't see so that. I think she grew up in Maine, too. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, but it was inspiring in how, you know, a lot of people kind of dismiss yeah. Maine and they think, you know, but oh, I, yeah. it goes to show that how even people from humble roots can yeah. be uh, kind of, you know. Yeah, well, a, listen, this is what I would say about Maine is there was no, compared to the way a lot of my friends later in life grew up, like, we always said, like, the captain of the football team lived in a trailer park. Like, nobody had that much of anything. And, you know, you material focus just wasn't a focus. Well, it goes to show success is built, and you've certainly done that. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. You're we welcome. sincerely appreciate it. Thank you.